My guest today is a drag king and documentary star who's been making waves in the Brooklyn scene. It was 2018 Drag King of the Year. It's probably your Brooklyn drag obsessive's favorite drag king. You've seen him recently give a standout performance at Bushwig, and you can watch his documentary, Max, right now, should you so please. I'm happy to have with me today the wonderful Max. Pleasure. Hello. All right. So uh, let's start with before drag. So prior to drag, you've talked about how you were a background dancer for other kings. Do you have a history with dance? And did you have any other types of performance that you're doing before drag? Yeah, so I actually, that's how I started doing drag at all. Um, I went to school at SUNY Purchase, and there's actually like a pretty prominent little drag scene there. Mm -hmm. And there's a competition that happens every year. One of the King's Rider Liqueur was looking up for backup dancers, and that's what I ended up doing. And then one thing led to another. But I actually did community theater while I was in high school, as well as taking dance classes while I was younger. And that was kind of like how I scratched my performance itch for a really long time was doing dance, being a featured dancer in the community theater shows. I was a dancing napkin in Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> That's great. A bamboo dancer in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, <laughs> my all-time favorite. But yeah, that was like the the performance that I really had a hand in. I did chorus, but I can't sing okay. at all. <laughs> I, w I was going to ask you, yeah, you, you're doing theater. Did you do any singing? It, it was musical theater, but um, and I would sing, but they never gave me a mic. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a reason for that. When it comes to drag, what was your first exposure to it? Yeah, my understanding of drag, I guess I didn't take interest in it that quickly because I felt like Maybe it was something that I couldn't participate in. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have an understanding of it. Like my understanding of drag before I got more educated was that it was a crude art form for mm -hmm. cis gay men. Really, it wasn't until I started doing drag in Brooklyn mm -hmm. that my understanding of it really opened up. When I first started, I thought that expressing your sexuality was a really prominent feature in drag. Mm -hmm. And it is in some spaces, specifically for drag kings, that was something that I needed to learn more about and be conscious of to really inform my understanding. What made you choose king over queen? I didn't know that being a drag queen was possible for me. When I was at school, I don't think there were any AFAB queens. Yeah, no, not that I think of. It, because even back then, I was like, oh, okay, so I'm a woman, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. If I want to do drag, I have to be a king. Mm -hmm. um, but when I started drag, it wasn't really the gender transformation that I was interested in. It was more the idea of getting back on stage, choreographing dances, making audio mixes, and making stories. Mm -hmm. That's what really drew me to it, rather than the gender fantasy of it but I did definitely be like I'm a man now let me put a sock down my pants mm -hmm. like that was you know that's what I thought I had to do now that you're a little more educated and informed on the matter do you ever think of dabbling into more feminine drag at all yeah and I'm not very confident in my makeup abilities mm -hmm. so I don't know that I would ever glue down my brows and contour my chest and all that I don't think I would look that great, but I definitely have started to dabble in more quote-unquote feminine yeah. qualities. For the Switch and Play Pride show this past June, I actually did Patti Smith, mm. and I wore a dress, and I didn't paint on a mustache, 
Um, and I look at the photos and I'm like, that's weird. It was a really fun number that I was really excited about. I did because of the night with like a cool rain sound effects in it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. But I've like I've started being more into like wearing dresses for some reason. I'm not sure what changed that made me really want to wear dresses in drag. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just because I want to feel like my Tyler Ashley Sasha Valore fantasy. So for listeners at home that are maybe not familiar with you how would you describe your drag aesthetic when you first started and how would you describe it now if you feel that it's changed enough that it's worth describing differently um I definitely go for the kind of rock and roll vibe when I first started doing drag and I realized that I really wanted to dedicate myself to it I was like okay I need to figure out what kind of masculine look works for me and I didn't want to be a king who wears a backwards baseball hat and jeans. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to find something that felt more naturally performative. And like I said, like I didn't feel confident in my makeup abilities. So I was like, actually, I can pull off the rocker look because it's really, when you think about it, the rocker look is just like a handful of simple indicators that are so easily legible. Like to become a rock star, you put on some rings, you put on some bracelets, you have a low cut shirt and you put grease in your hair and smudgy black makeup and you're done. It's a really easy thing to pull together mm -hmm. or rather it's like a good trick. The difference between the beginning of my drag career and now is that I allow myself to bring a lot more of myself to the, to the stage in a way. You've mentioned that in another interview that you felt that your first performance was kind of messy for a few reasons. Can you remember the first performance for you that everything just clicked and it felt like, all right, this went right? The first number that like I was like, okay, I am definitely good at this. Like mm -hmm. I can believe that now when people tell me mm -hmm. <laughs> was when I first did Rock Lobster. Mm -hmm. um, my friend Christ for the Q, who is also a Brooklyn drag performer, they went to purchase and their senior show was actually a drag show in the visual arts building. And that's when I decided to do Rock Lobster. Like I told my siblings, I was like, I have this idea. It's a monster story. And I'm this cool guy who gets turned into a lobster. And they were like, you're out of your mind like <laughs> me and a friend we choreographed it I put the mix together I pulled from so many it was three different songs my sibling recorded some audio for me I took audio from the Disney movie Hercules like mm -hmm. it really like that's like my masterpiece and that was the first time where like I couldn't get off stage before I had friends running up to me and being like that was so good like mm -hmm. I ended up coming to Brooklyn with that number now on the other side of the spectrum, what do you think is the worst you've ever bombed and what did you take away from it? <laughs> oh, so before I brought Gautier's Smoke and Mirrors to Bushwig, mm -hmm. I had done it at Patty Spliff's Sad Songs at the Rosemont. Mm -hmm. um, and then after I was like, oh, OK, I'll do it for Emmy Great's show last month tonight. I started the number. This was so the original mask pieces that I had were flimsy plastic from AC Moore and real broken mirror pieces. Huh. So it was heavy, it was fragile, it was sharp. I got a minute into the number and the secret small muzzle uh -huh. that's the big reveal at the end fell out of the mask oh. a minute in and shattered. Oh. Yeah. So I had to do the whole number completely pulled out of my ass like uh -huh. i actually ended up stomping on it because i was like what am i gonna do like how am i gonna make this like 
how can I rescue this number? And I stomped on it and I turned it into like an angry thing instead. I don't think it went well. Um, (laughs) It definitely didn't go the way I wanted it to, but it actually really ended up informing the way that I rebuilt the props and choreographed the number later on. Do you have an ultimate goal that you'd like to achieve when it comes to your drag career? That's a good question. I mean, I'm so lucky that I met my goals very quickly like it was my dream to be nominated for a Brooklyn Nightlife Award I was nominated in 2017 Mm -hmm. when I had only performed in Brooklyn like four times and then I won the next year and that was like a goal um performing at Sasha Velour's nightgowns that was like a dream that I didn't dare say out loud Mm -hmm. so when I got booked for it I was like uh, like uh I can I guess I could be done now. And then even the things that followed after that were things that I never would have expected. Um walking in New York Fashion Week with Sasha and opening ceremony, the documentary, mm-hmm. like those are all things that I I never would have thought would happen. Mm-hmm. So, I feel pretty content, but definitely like hopes for the future. I know that I would like to continue doing drag. I want to get into other mediums a little bit because mm-hmm. um, I have a little bit of a background in sculpture, yeah. in video art. So those are things I kind of want to get into. A goal is to continue to have a good time because mm-hmm. what's the point of doing drag if you're not having fun? Yeah. And I guess I'll just leave it at that. That will be the goal. And then on a similar note, what does success mean to you? I've always been a person who likes to hear that I've done a good job. So success for me is definitely um, earning the respect of my peers. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm doing a pretty good job at that so far. And I guess success is also feeling good about my accomplishments, feeling like not only that I succeeded, but also knowing that I did it the right way. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think that's, that's it for me. And you actually touched upon my next question. (laughs) So what matters to you more, critical reception or audience reception? What do you mean critical reception? Like, let's say, I guess in terms of like if an article comes out praising Mm. your performance or like all the articles that there is a few articles that came out, I think, praising your Bushwick performance. What does that mean more to you than, I guess, the 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 beckoning of fans and the yells (laughs) it's the audience that's there that's cheering for you i know i definitely when i perform if the room is really quiet i notice that or if there's if i hear a lot of background chatter i'm like oh my god like what like what can i do if we're in a queer space it's assumed that the audience is part of the queer community Mm -hmm. and their reaction i think is the most important Mm -hmm. um those are the people who are going to book you support you root for you you know, but I definitely do love a good article. I love a good review. Mm-hmm. And even I think also like criticism is also important. Yeah. That's something like I'll ask my friends. I'll be like, was this weird? Was that weird? My partner always like comes to meet with shows and I'm like, tell me the truth. <laughs> was it bad? And they were like, the vibe was weird. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. Like, <laughs> But yeah, no, I think the the vibe in the room, the feeling the give and take between you and the audience, that's the most important and also most rewarding thing. How much do you allow how an audience reacted to one number affect how you look at that number, perform it, alter it in the future? Or more so, how how much are you willing to take audience feedback 
into changing things or are you very much set on your vision when you have something? I pride myself in my ability to really think through things. I think that I definitely prep a number as best as I can. I guess save a prayer, for example, when I first did that number, it it just was an accident that all the props were read. I had a sheet. I had, there were other elements, but because I did the number, I think I did it twice before nightgowns ended up happening. And I like thought about like, okay, this was actually, it was too much for me to hold. So one thing has to go. Also, I feel like this should have been like a bigger beat for the number. This was the turning point. And I feel like the audience didn't get that enough. So maybe I'll like exaggerate it a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I definitely do try to improve on numbers. Sometimes, like I said earlier, like sometimes an audience just doesn't vibe with a number and that's okay. I mean, it's definitely still worth thinking about. Like, like, did they not like it because this costume piece came across the wrong way? It's definitely an important thing to think about. And I think being conscious of the decisions that you make on stage and how things may be interpreted are so important, especially as a drag king. When I first started, I didn't understand that as a quote unquote woman that I could accidentally further ideas about toxic masculinity and misogyny mm-hmm. through my performance. And that was actually a really important lesson for me to know and to to understand that that was something that I needed to be diligent about, mm-hmm. making sure not to promote harmful ideas in that way. So to shift a little bit towards the business end of drag, if you go to any drag show, I think anyone will know that it's always strongly encouraged. Tip, tip your queens tip your kings etc just how important is tipping for a drag performer from your experience what an interesting question Mm -hmm. i mean drag is not my primary form of income Mm -hmm. but it definitely is of course a form of currency it's a way to show your love and appreciation just like likes on an instagram post Mm -hmm. are yeah if i do a gig and i don't walk away with a pocket full of singles, I won't necessarily consider that number a failure. Mm-hmm. But when I walk away with my pockets bulging with singles, mm-hmm. I definitely feel more appreciated. It's I like tangible mm-hmm. like praise. Mm-hmm. Like I like when my partner looks me in the face and says, you did a great job. Or I love when my friends are like, you totally used up all that stage. And that's what made it a great performance. Like I like tangible things in that way yes so of course tangible money is pretty great in my opinion got you (laughs) and then also in terms of business you hear a lot about how for some kings and queens actually if not a lot of them it's a struggle when it comes to like proper compensation and how like well they're treated by managers of like clubs and bars Mm-hmm. You you hear so much about how like queens and kings and just drag performers in general don't have a union. So I'm kind of curious, why don't you think there's been like a drag performers union? And if there have been attempts to make one, why haven't we heard about it? I mean, I'm fairly new to the scene. Um, so I can't really speak to if there has been those discussions or not. I know I haven't been a mm-hmm. part of any of them. There was starting to be talk amongst the community, like these um, 
the, these owners don't pay you. They don't really care about your safety. And here's how. Like, there definitely started to be some coordination and conversation in the community. I think as drag's popularity continues to rise, I hope that more discussions will take place. And I hope that even if it's not per se a formal mm-hmm agreement that's across the board yeah i would very much like venue owners managers to understand that drag is really it's a labor Mm -hmm. and because of drag's popularity like performers really don't have to just take the scraps that they can get like you know what i mean so i hope that drag performers are valued and compensated appropriately and then what do you think if anything consumers of drag entertainment can do to have an impact to get things changed or just better support their queens or kings or performers? I think continuing the support as it's been so far would be excellent. I think social media following is becoming really important. I think paying the cover tipping, Mm -hmm. liking posts, sharing posts, following, all that stuff. I think that that fan bases are what lift people up. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the way that drag fans can kind of help out. Yeah. I think also, I I don't watch Drag Race. I used to watch it a little bit, not so much anymore. Understandable. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that fans of drag who are fans of Drag Race could definitely help by supporting local drag, Mm -hmm. by educating themselves and knowing that not all drag has to look like RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah. You've mentioned a few times at this point kind of the importance of social media. I'm kind of curious from your perspective, like, what is the economy of a like and a follower to you? Like, how important? What? What? How does that make a difference? I actually, I take a lot of pride in my in my Instagram profile. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually, it's be. I think, at least from my understanding, it's something that's really important, especially more high profile gigs. If you're getting booked, um, by someone who's not in the scene, you're. Instagram follower number as well as your um, your social media interactions kind of serves as an indicator of what kind of performer you are and how well liked you are. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a double-edged sword because I'm sure there are some fantastic performers who like just don't have that social media game yeah. on point, you know? It's definitely something like the social media game is something that I like legitimately like read up on. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how do you like... How do you continue to get social media engagement? And how do you gain followers? Like, it was something that I read up on because my day job has a little bit to do with that. So mm-hmm. it's something that I'm interested in. But I can't speak to if it should be an indicator of one's talent or bookability. Yeah. But I can definitely say that it it has become that. Gotcha. <laughs> and then you recently got on Twitter. What made you decide to make such a decision? <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh, man. I can't remember... Because I had a private Twitter for a long time that was like a finsta zone. Like it's mm-hmm. some, there's some dark stuff on there. But I started following like AJ Jordan, mm-hmm. Show Pony, my friends from upstate. Like I started following them and I was like, I really want to like interact with them, but I don't want them to have to follow like my extremely private Twitter. Yeah. So that's what made me like get a public Twitter. And Twitter's weird. 
Yeah, yeah. It's very odd. Uh, it's also, I find it to be the most depressing social media platform. Oh, you need to be on Reddit more. Or you don't need to be on oh, Reddit more. Oh, yikes. But I actually, I looked myself up on Reddit earlier this morning. Why would you do such a thing? Well, because I like, I set up a Google alert for my name. <laughs> but because my name is Max Pleasure with uh, three X's, I kept getting porn delivered to my Gmail. <laughs> yeah, that that sounds about right. Yeah, so I was like, all right, let me like Google myself and like see what there is. There isn't a lot about me on Reddit, which is probably a good thing. But someone posted, it was a, I think this was before Landon Cider was announced on Dragula. Mm-hmm. And someone was like, we should bring kings to Dragula. Like, what kings should be on Dragula? And someone said Max Pleasure. And I was like, (laughs) I literally would fail so hard at Dragula. I am so squeamish. (laughs) I'm like, I don't even have any tattoos. Like, but yeah. Is there a reason for that? For no tattoos? Uh Um. I think that for a long time, I would say it was my fear of commitment, Mm -hmm. but I think it's because my sense of self hasn't really, I feel like I'm at this point of my life where I'm really, um, is garnering the right word. I feel more in tune with myself more than I ever have. Yeah. And actually now I have like on my way here, a queer person rode by on a bike and they had these really insane, um, tattoo sleeves. And I was like, that's actually really like yeah it's 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 a dark i i have a bunch that are covered by my sleeves and pants but once once you start it's just it doesn't end that's what i've heard that's what i've heard yeah or at least i feel like if you're getting a tattoo in in commemoration of someone or something or an event you could maybe leave it at one because you're not doing it because of like the artistry you're more so doing it on like a permanent reminder or mm-hmm. something but mm-hmm. if you're like doing it for aesthetic reasons it doesn't stop yeah like you just keep going and going my mom actually has a tattoo oh my gosh yeah and my mom like she's a very judgmental person <laughs> and growing up she would always be that person who'd be like oh my god look at that woman's tattoo and we would be like mom stop being mean <laughs> but so then Um, my grandfather passed away Mm -hmm. and my mom was like, I'm going to get a tattoo. And we were like, you're out of your, we didn't say this, but I was like, are you serious? And she did. She got a tattoo on her foot in commemoration of her dad. And she let my younger sister get one too, (laughs) which was, that was actually the most shocking part. But yeah, I've, um, Max Pleasure has tattoos. Yes. But I do not. Ooh, you should do them real finger tattoos. Yeah. Yeah. I do the king on my knuckles. Uh And also, um, for a period of time, I wrote lyrics from, my first number was this big alien love story and it had a cover of Space Oddity in it. Okay. And when I started giving Max Pleasure tattoos after that, which would just, you know, like I tried to like do the print thing. Then I started just drawing on myself in Sharpie. <laughs> um, one of the tattoos was ground control, the major Tom. Yeah. But I'm going to definitely, I know this person who makes really intricate temporary tattoos. Mm. And one day I'm like going to get the whole, I'm going to get King. I'm going to get probably Duran Duran lyrics. That's fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really excited about it, but I wonder, if it's like cheap because there are so many drag people who have real tattoos Mm -hmm. we'll see we'll see how it goes i guess to kind of wrap up here let's talk a little bit about your documentary how did that happen how did that come to be so i actually stevie and nathaniel we went to college together Mm. um we were in the same group of friends 
we kind of lost touch for a little while after they graduated. They both started working for Lonely Leap. And I guess in addition to doing commissioned projects, they're also encouraged to do their own independent work. Mm-hmm. And um, they texted me one day and were like, we kind of like are thinking about doing something about Drag Kings. Why don't we get you a drink and we could talk about it? And that actually came at a really weird time in my life. Mm-hmm. But I was like, yeah, sure, let's talk about it. And like we filmed it over a month or two, I think, hmm. in 2018. It was the spring of 2018. Um, and then it came out in July. But it was it was really interesting because they didn't really, when we first started talking, they weren't sure if the focus was going to be Drag Kings as a whole, if it was going to be um, about me and another king. It, and I think it was Vigor Mortis, actually, who is part of the documentary. Yeah. He had a conversation with Stevie and Nathaniel, and he was like, listen you don't want to get too broad on this, like just focus on Max and I, and I will be part of it as like an extra like spokesperson oh, per big, se. Bigger's such a person. I, I really, I, ad, I'm very conscious of not putting him on a pedestal, mm-hmm. but I admire him so much and I feel that he has so much wisdom to offer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm so grateful that he volunteer volunteered to be a part of the documentary and really got to talk from from a drag king with experience. While I'm def I definitely haven't been around as long. He I think that his perspective really added something to the documentary. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And then I guess last question: uh, What was the most difficult aspect of the documentary for you, and what was the most satisfying thing about it? It's hard to look back on the making of it. Because I had no idea it was going to end up like it did. Um, I don't know how the story was going to flow if I hadn't won Dragging of the Year yeah. while we were filming it. I think that it was, it, it's it's odd because that was a very tumultuous time in my life. Mm-hmm. And it was hard dealing with the hard stuff while trying to present this documentary that was going to live exist beyond that time period i was like how am i supposed to share myself in a positive light share my art in a positive light when all of that is being called into question yeah and i think that it's so amazing because the documentary ended up it allows me to look back on that time period and actually feel proud Mm -hmm. and good and good about myself it's actually it's kind of funny so i of course, got to view the documentary before it formally came out. And Stevie was like, all right, this is one of our last drafts. We're going to share it with you. Let us know what you think. And I was like, okay, okay. So, like, I went into my dad's office, finally loaded it up on the computer and watched it. And the documentary ends with um, Max Pleasure went on to win Drag King of the Year 2018. Mm-hmm. And I actually, like... That was the first time, like, I started screaming and clapping and cheering for myself because I, because of everything that was going on at that time, I didn't, it didn't sink in that I got this great award that the Brooklyn community at large voted me to be Drag King of the Year. Like, I didn't, there was something that was blocking me from really appreciating and understanding that. Yeah. But then watching this beautiful nine minute documentary that has so many people that I love and admire talking about drag, talking about me, talking about my gender journey, 
and just seeing this nice little bubble Mm -hmm. like uh, it it was just it was amazing and I'm so thankful for Stevie and Nathaniel for gifting me with that allowing me to see my true light if we want to be dramatic about it Mm -hmm. but also creating something that people actually find inspirational Mm -hmm. like I um some of my cousins who I haven't seen in years um friends who I lost touch with reached strangers people reached out to me and were like your documentary was so inspiring like thank you for that and I'm like don't thank me like (laughs) thanks Stevie and Nathaniel and Lonely Leap who who made this beautiful picture and allowed it to happen but yeah cool and I think that's a great place to end things so where can the people find you follow you consume your media etc um if you're interested in following me you can do so on instagram i'm at mr m pleasure that's mr dot m pleasure you can also follow me on twitter um let me know how my tweets are doing (laughs) um twitter is max pleasure 13 um i have a few shows coming up one of which is in a group art exhibition in support of sexual assault survivors. Mm. That's happening on October 5th. All the information on my upcoming shows and gigs and all that cool stuff uh, can be found on my Instagram. Cool. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Of course.